The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Man, I love Sunday mornings. I love coming together with God's people. Um, It's such a treat, such a treat. Um, But in my walk, um, being a Christian, there's always been a word, a concept that uh, in the Christian vocabulary that's always sort of puzzled me. It's a fairly common expression. Everyone knows it. Everyone's seen it, familiar with it. It's probably trending on social media right now, and as familiar as it is, very rarely can you thoroughly explain it. It's hard to pinpoint it. Now, even the majority of Google searches leave explanations that seem inadequate. You know, you read it, it's like, yeah, but it's, it's more than that. There's more to it, right? Now, I'm speaking of the word blessed, right? What does it mean to be hashtag blessed, The culture might suggest that to be blessed is to have a photogenic family, to get a new pair of Jordans, uh, to to get that unexpected raise, to have that pumpkin spice latte on a snowy fall day. But is that it? Right? Is that really it? Now, it's moments like this where I turn to the prophetic voice of theologian Chance the Rapper and discover that there's a difference in blessings and worldly possessions. It just doesn't seem to add up when we see culture's definition of what it means to be blessed. But what's even more puzzling, I think, is how we obtain these blessings. How do we actually become blessed people? After all, we all have this hunger to be blessed, this internal desire, this craving that our bellies have for it. And even though we can't explain exactly what it is, or maybe even our our version of being blessed is sort of skewed, we're all chasing the blessed life. Now, our passage this morning sheds light on what this blessed life is. If I may say, it's actually the Christian life and what that looks like. See, the blessed life has less to do with external indicators that may or may not be in your social media feed or be able to be documented in your upcoming Christmas letters. 
And it's more about the impact that you are making on people. And that is directly related to what your heart is set on. It doesn't take the occasional Instagram post or the annual Christmas letter to keep people in on that. You see, people experience that with you. See, if you're a Christian, you've been profoundly and radically blessed, far beyond what anyone in this room deserves. You see, do you think people who confessed honestly our confession of sin today actually deserve the absolution that was read over us? No. We've wandered away. We've been unfaithful. We haven't lived up to the family name, yet God says, you're my child. See, because Jesus' righteousness stands in the place of our unrighteousness, we have received a grace-packed blessing in Christ, which is indeed our chief blessing in life. But it's hardly the only way that God has blessed us. Now, there's a problem with being blessed. There's a lot of good, a lot of good things that come from being blessed, but one of the things that we tend to do is to squander our blessing by being hoarders. Now, you've probably seen the TV show, The Hoarders. I don't know what channel it's on, but, you know, you, that show where it uh, shows a cameraman walking through, like, mounds of newspapers from 14 years ago, right? Trash that's never been thrown away. Just things piled up on things that are kept by that one person. See, I think this is oftentimes what we're like. When we receive blessing, we hold on to a lot of what we get. I think this is the primary way that Christians waste blessings. So we hold on to them for ourselves. Now, if we follow the redemptive story that God's telling from, from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is that God gives blessings in order to create a gospel movement. It creates a sort of domino effect. You know what I'm talking about? Like stacking up the dominoes. I'm a sucker for these videos on YouTube, right? You, you, look, you watch them and you're like, I wonder what these grown men do for a living. Why are they stacking up dominoes? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But then when they hit the first one and it's, it's pretty cool to watch. That's exactly what God intends to do through blessing us, to create a domino effect, a movement that you are blessed so that you could be a blessing to others. This is exactly what God had in mind when he called Abraham and every person of faith from that point on. You are blessed to be a blessing. But more often than not, Christians tend to act like dominoes who have been super glued to the floor. The blessings come and they stop. They don't get relayed on. And I'm not just talking about physical blessings that you have, though that is definitely a major factor, but I'm also talking about how you use your words, how you affirm or curse others, how you forbear with people who have sinned against you, how you forgive them, how you give your time sacrificially, how you serve, how you're graciously hospitable. And I think this is the biggest one how good of a listener you are. But a marker of being truly blessed, to live the blessed life, this is how you know you're blessed. If you can bless others, 
even when it costs you greatly. See, the blessed life is a bit of a paradox. If you want to live a blessed life, it means that you will suffer in order to share your your blessings with others. Which, as you suffer, as you endure, it will inevitably lead you to a more robust, more profound blessing for you to revel in. See, if you're not suffering an effort to bless others, you're missing out on something. Now, living a blessed life means that you will become very familiar with struggles and suffering. The Christian life, the blessed life, is not a series of cliches when somebody asks you how you're doing. Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. Right? All is good. No. It's more nuanced than that. If, if Christianity were like this, sort of generic, everything's always happy, we would, we would be phonies. We would have no credit at all with the outside world. People would look at us and be like, this person's completely delusional. How can they say this when their life is so tumultuous? See, the reason for this is if, if we are disengaged from suffering, if we have no experience with suffering, we are disengaged from the unifying factor of human life. All people, regardless of race, culture, time, socioeconomic status, have been hit by suffering in one way or another. And if Christians are disengaged, then we have nothing to offer a world that is groaning with pain. See, this is why what Peter has to say to us today is so pertinent if we want to be part of a gospel movement that reaches the people of our city. If we want to see a domino effect of blessing pour out on our city, if we want to see our neighborhoods and our workplaces change for the glory of God and the good of man, what we need today is to hear from Peter and let his message sustain us. And this is his message for us today, that we must endure suffering as a means of blessing others, but in doing so, we too will be blessed. So if you want to open up your Bible with us this morning, we're in 1 Peter. And if you're just joining us, you're probably wondering, why is suffering such a dominant factor in this discussion? And so maybe a little bit of historical context to this book will help you out a little bit. Peter is writing a letter uh, roughly around 62 to 64 AD to a group of Christians who he calls the elect exiles. These are gospel people who have a a new worldview that's based upon what Jesus has accomplished for them that does not allow them to really fit in with the culture. Because of this new worldview, they are at odds with the trending values of society. And so in one regard, this is why this letter is so relevant to us today. If you're a Christian, and if you're serious about Jesus and living out your faith, what you'll find is you will be met with resistance. See, we're learning this. The more we associate with Jesus, the less the culture wants to do with us. But Peter has been strongly urging Christians not to pull away and retreat to to enclaves, not to separate from the culture and go live their own way. 
And he's telling them also to, to don't, don't reject the faith. He's saying lean into it. For the sake of God's mission, which his mission is to bless the world through his people, Christians must faithfully engage. Now, Peter has previously offered some really practical instruction on how to do this, specifically with how to be subject to authority. And it's more than just going through the motions. What he's, what he's really getting after here is how to honor people. See, this should be a marker of Christian community, that we are a people who honors authority that's been placed above us, whether it be the government, with our bosses, our teachers, within the context of the, the household dynamics, husbands honoring wives and wives honoring husbands. And now Peter's going to sort of focus in on what it looks like to live this out, this honor culture in the context of a Christian community. And what we're going to get to here is he's going to show, as you live this out, as you embody this as your missional community, this is going to transform the way that you interact with the rest of the world. So here we go. Peter is going to focus in on the non-negotiable dynamics of what your missional community should embody. So if you're there, 1 Peter chapter 3, say there. There, there yep, I like this. I like the interaction. We're getting there. Here we go. And actually, let's look here. Chapter uh, 3, verse 8. Finally. Now, Peter, he, he begins this passage here in true preacher fashion, right? Finally, right? It seems like he's going to wrap things up here, but if you notice, there's still two chapters left of this book, right? It's like a, it's like a false ending, and so what, I, I, what I'm getting from this is I, I have biblical precedence to preach for 10 minutes more now, right? And, and usually people hear the word when I say that, finally, or in conclusion, that's like people's kind of cue to wake up from their little slumber. So I have to kind of like interject that here and now just to make sure everybody stays with me. And it's a little warm in here today and we didn't have a lot of coffee, so it's extra necessary. But he says, finally, take a look at that, verse 8, finally, all of you, say all of you. That means all of you. Look down, look down the pew. Look at somebody in your MC and say, hey, he's talking to you here. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, Peter here has laid out characteristics that should mark every single one of our missional communities in the city. This is, this is a passage about communal conduct, what it looks like to honor our missional communities. Have unity of mind. That's how he starts it off. He, and in other places in Scripture, this, this is same idea is captured by saying, be like-minded, live in harmony, be unified, be one. Now, because the gospel transcends all ideological, cultural, ethnic, racial, gender, and socioeconomic barriers, it means that the gospel reaches all people of all kinds, not just white, conservative, middle-class people and those who can kind of fit in that mold. It reaches all people. There's not a single person in this city that the gospel is not intended to reach. 
See, this is why we want to be a radically diverse church, racially, socioeconomically, lifestyle, political views. We want to be a diverse church because that is what the gospel creates. See, any homogeneous social group can rally around one idea. Any group can do this if you're the same. But it's only the gospel that creates a unified diversity. And this is a hard task, right? You know this if you're living in community with somebody who has a difficult, different viewpoint than you do, whether it's politically, how they spend their money, how they parent. It is hard to live in community and on mission with people who are different than you. And for a lot of us, we might get frustrated and want to pull out, right, retreat from that. We say, well, my, my preferences aren't the commonality here. But here's the thing. This is meant to press us deeper into the gospel. See, it's not our preferences, but it's Christ's at the center. It's not about us. It's about Christ and his mission. Now, if your preferences are at the center of your relationship, at the center of your community, then it is impossible to be radically unified, yet be diverse. See, so how is it that Christians can have unity of mind? It starts with this. Keep your mind on Christ. Keep your mind on Christ. What this means, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. If Sunday morning is the only time where you're hearing the gospel come at you, you're going to live a diminished life. have to know how to recite the good news of the gospel to yourself. You have to remember that Jesus laid down his preferences to make us one with the Father, to make us family. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that because of the gospel, Christians together share the mind of Christ. So it's no longer do we yield to our own desires, our own preferences, but we yield to the mind of Christ. We let his mission, his desires for our world, for our community, influence the way we live and direct our steps. Now in doing this, in letting Christ lead us to have the mind of Christ, there are going to be things that come along with this. In verse six, or verses 8 through 9, captures this, and it begins with sympathy. Now, by sympathy, Peter is talking about an understanding of one another. It's not just being like, oh, I know my brother's sad, so I'm going to go there, there. It'll be all right. No, this, this type of suffering is a, uh, of sympathy is a robust sympathy to know, to understand one another. To not just say, oh, I see your problem, but man, I feel it. I'm in it with you. I'm shouldering this load with you. We don't just look at our MC as people to fix, people to make better. See, God has put people in our life, in our mission communities, to be people that we understand. And in understanding them, we understand greater the grace of God and how it meets them where they're at. See, this is why we tell stories in our missional communities. 
It's not just about getting to know each other on sort of a surface level. We tell our stories because that is a way that we, we gain sympathy, understanding for one another. It's a way that we, we learn how, can, how we can walk beside that person and encourage them and point them to Jesus. See, and this is what it means to walk in brother love. It means to walk alongside each other. Now, brotherly love isn't, isn't this deal where I'm the older brother and I'm going to tell you what to do so you can make your life sort of square out right. And I'm learning this personally right now. See, brotherly love says this, I will be by your side regardless of what you do because the gospel makes us flesh and blood family now. Regardless of what you do, I'm going to be by your side. That's brotherly love. See, next he goes on and says, be tender-hearted. Now, this seems kind of like a feminine quality, right? Just like last week as Eric was preaching through, through the, the command for wives to be gentle. But, but it's not a feminine quality, right? To be tender-hearted. No, no, no. This is a Christ-like quality. Now, most ladies are naturally bent toward this, to be tender-hearted, right? That's why, that's why these commercials with puppies and stuff always get them. They're tender-hearted. But this is meant to be a quality that's embodied by the men, too. See, our culture is full of stoic brutes, men with thick skin, no tears, no hurts, just pure tough guys. Right? This is sort of the, the culture's version of masculinity. But this does not describe Jesus at all. And if we're going to any place other than Jesus to get a definition of masculinity, we're doing it wrong. Jesus was absolutely tough, but he was also tender. He had the perfect blend. He cried over his, not just cried, he wept, like probably ugly cry, over the death of his friend Lazarus. He was sensitive and intentional with children. He was a man who was compassionate with those who knew suffering very well. Now for most men, this is an aspect of the Christian life that we need to grow in, that we need to reclaim Christ-like tenderness. Now this is not a call to be a sissy man. Right? Men of God must be strong, but we must also be tender. And this begins with us remembering how Christ found us in our vulnerable state, that we were lost orphans. As one of our songs said today, that we were naked, vulnerable. Like there's, there's nothing more, naked, more vulnerable than being naked. We came to Christ and he clothed us. And we were scared, alone, vulnerable, and the Father drew near to us with such gentleness and tenderness. See, all men need to embody this. We need to, we need to recall the tenderness of God to influence us to be tender men. In fact, this is a qualification for the office of elder. See, brutes and tough guys aren't fit to lead God's church. Yes, you must be tough, but you must also be tender. See, because that's what Jesus was like. 
And the fifth characteristic of community that Peter lays out for us today is to be humble-minded. Now, some of the stuff that he's laid out already to, to have this proclivity to being unified, to being tender-hearted, to have this brotherly love, some of us might have these natural tendencies in our life, right? But humility is not natural for any sinner. See, what, what Peter is calling the church to here is supernatural. This is not fit in with your natural giftings. Because sin naturally makes us think highly of ourselves, that we become puffed up with pride. We become stubborn in our own ways. And you know what kills community? You know what will squash the thriving of your missional community? Stubborn people. Stubborn people who think they know best. That is the antithesis of what it means to be humble-minded. Full disclaimer, I'm the most stubborn person I know. I am. I think I get it from my, my mom, maybe, but it's a little inherited. But I'm full-on stubborn. And, and if you were to survey the last six years of me leading missional communities, you can point to instance after instance of how my stubbornness has squashed a missional community. See, without humility of mind, relationships, gospel ministry will be hindered rather than flourishing. And I found out that even the times when I was stubborn and right, that's still what happens. See, you can be right and still be a jerk. Or you can be right and you can be humble. See, there's a difference there because humility will win people over. But all this brings us to a good point here in verse 9, that if you live in community and on mission, you will be sinned against. Yes, you will fail at these five or six characteristics that Peter's laid out, but so will your missional community family. They'll mess it up at some point. They'll hurt you. Their pride will get in the way. They'll be insensitive. They'll be harsh. They'll be impatient with you. So therefore, verse 9 not only will apply to the, the, the community outside of the Christian community, but it, it specifically applies to you inside of the, the Christian community. Take a look at verse 9 once again. He said, do not repay evil for evil. Yes, your missional community is capable of evil. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. You see, there, the sin of your missional community does not give you license to retaliate, right? You, you, you don't have permission to say, well, they hurt me, so I get to hurt them back. Not if you believe the gospel. See, that retaliation is a human reflex. It's the flesh driving us. But if you are a Christian, your reflexes of the flesh are overridden by the mind of Christ so that when you are sinned against, you may bless in return. See, this is the sixth mark that Peter lays out of the Christian community and it is that intentional forbearance and forgiveness with one another. Listen, and you can't do this well you don't get to exercise this unless you are in a missional community. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we pretend like there was no hurt. We don't, we don't, we're not dishonest about the pains that we feel or, or the way people sin against us because lying about that will also ruin community. But there is a way to be honest about our hurt and our suffering and still take it to Jesus, the mender of our soul. See, as we cast our burdens on the one who can sympathize with our aches and pains, we have great confidence in knowing that Jesus felt the same way. He was reviled, that he was sinned against, that evil came at him full force, even from his missional community, right? His 12 disciples, I bet nobody sinned against Jesus like his 12 disciples did. Even Peter, denying Jesus three times? See, as we look to Jesus, we see his ability to forgive in the face of evil. And we can draw from his power to turn the other cheek as he taught us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And as counterintuitive as it is to turn the other cheek, there's more to it than that. He says, don't just turn the other cheek. Bless them in return. Even when blessing is not deserved. Why? Why bless in return? Because that's what we have received in Christ. Because of sin, we deserve nothing. Nothing but sin and death in the grave. You see, a sinner can't say, I I don't deserve any of this bad stuff in my life. I don't deserve to lose my job. I don't deserve to have a rough marriage. I don't deserve to have my neighbors think poorly of me. A Christian can't say that. Because Christians deserve nothing. Why do we deserve nothing? Because we are sinners. And what exactly does this sin look like? Sin is us reviling God to speak poorly of him, to accuse him, and to say that you aren't good enough. That's what sin is. Sin is a finger-wagging accusation of God that you are not good enough for me. Whether that's in our retaliation when we sin against God, right? We get sinned against and say, well, God, you can't fix this. You won't, you won't do it right, so I'm going to take this into my own hands. Right? That's accusing God that he can't do it right. Or if that's turning to anything but God, money, sex, the suburban dream, our kids, our accomplishments. And it's saying that God can't d- deliver what I need, so I'm going to look somewhere else for it. The problem with these, these things, these sinful tendencies, is that they only add to the misery long term. All of these things are fleeting. But if you want to stand in that, if you want to be able to bless when sinned against, you need the irrevocable, eternal blessing that is only found in Christ. Though we sin against God, God does not withhold from us. God looks at men and women who day in and day out rebel, revile, who do evil against his name, and he pours out grace upon grace. This is the good news of the gospel, friends, the unmerited, unrestricted grace and blessings that are ours 
only in Christ. That we are blessed beyond our comprehension. That God's love is upon you. That nothing can spoil that. Nothing can take that away. And it's not because we earned it. It's not because our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. It's because Jesus has earned it for us. See, this is the supreme blessing. To gain from Jesus what you are incapable of achieving for yourself. And to have this is the beginning of the blessed life. And this is available for all people who turn from their sin, to turn away from the reviling and cling to Christ. The people who say, there's nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer you, God, but I'm going to cling to Christ because that is all I need. That's your blessing. Christ himself. See, and as recipients of this great blessing, as recipients of something that, that we do not deserve, that Christ has looked at us when we've sinned against him and he, he pours out blessing upon blessing. How could we withhold the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of blessing others to our brothers and sisters in Christ? How could we do that? And I know that there are people in this room who are holding brothers and sisters in unforgiveness. And let me just say, how dare you? It's selfish. You're rejecting your calling as a Christian. So your calling as a Christian is to bless when you're sinned against. Right? That, that's one of the biggest evidences that you can know you're a Christian. Do you respond to evil by blessing? Because it takes the supernatural power of the gospel to do that in someone. See, not only are you depriving your brother and sister or sister from a profound experience of the blessing of forgiveness, but you're depriving yourself. Now, let me tell you, one of the most profound experiences in my life of God's grace is through my friend Josh. In high school, I was a total jerk to Josh. He was completely undeserving. He was a great guy, and I would just be a jerk. I do mean stuff to him. I belittle him. I make him feel like an idiot. And after I graduated, Josh and I became good friends. And there's no way that we could have been friends unless it were for his, the, the work of the gospel in his heart. That in the face of the evil, he would bless me with forgiveness. I can't think of, there's very few examples of God's profound grace in my life than that. What Josh gave me by meeting my evil with blessing was so sweet. You know what I did? It pointed me to Jesus. See, this is the impact that we can have on our brothers and sisters when we forgive them in the face of evil. See, not only are you depriving them by keeping them in unforgiveness, you're depriving yourself because what Peter says here is that by meeting evil with blessing, you too will be blessed. We can get this twisted into a, a very moralistic thing. This idea of like, if I do this, if I bless people, then I'll finally get my blessing. But that's hardly what Peter is saying here. Chapter 1 actually shows us this because he shows us that all the blessings that we receive are inherited purely on the basis of God's mercy. 
It's not by anything you do. It's God's mercy that inherits you blessing. And, and Ed Clowney, who is a commentator on this passage, he says, God who calls us to inherit his blessing calls us to follow the path of peace that leads to blessing. See, this is what it looks like to live the Christian life. In light of the blessing that you will inherit to live a life of blessing others. And while we're profoundly blessed in Christ, this allows us to bless at our own expense, to pour out undeserved blessings on those who sin against us. And by doing so, there is a blessing for us because we know the joy that we're offering them. We know the joy firsthand, the joy that we receive in Christ as he meets our evil with blessing. And Peter actually, he goes into this Old Testament reference here from Psalm 34 that we've already seen him bring up a couple times in this in this letter, and he's proving his point here that this is nothing new for God's people. That God's people have always been called to respond to evil with blessing. And I don't have time to unpack this, but I just want to show you how scripturally saturated the Apostle Peter is. And he's not a Bible scholar by any means. The Apostle Peter was a fisherman who Jesus grabbed the hold of his heart that Jesus became so beautiful, more beautiful than anything else in his life, that he was willing to devote himself to Jesus and his word. Now, friends, what would it look like for us to be this kind of people that are scripturally saturated, that we steep ourselves in the word of God so that in the moment when we need to speak the prophetic word that God has for us, that we can call upon his word to speak life into people. Oh, the power of that, my friends, If you're having a hard time getting your Bible, think of that. Now from verse 13 on, the application that Peter's building out for this community goes beyond the Christian community. He's saying don't just forgive your missional community, the people that you love that sin against you. Forgive the people outside the community who sin against you, who have nothing but sinful, evil intentions for you, that they want to harm you. They want to be hostile toward you. And so verse 13, it starts with a seemingly preposterous question, especially in light of what happened in Texas last week. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Sounds like a dumb question. It's like, I can think of a lot of people who can harm me, right? Even P- Peter here, like as he's writing this, he's, he's just a few years away from Nero and his regime killing him. It might seem naive, but, but Peter has an eternal perspective right here that allows him to see suffering of all kinds as gain. Verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. See, this is a great promise, that if you are zealous for good, you cannot be harmed. Now, I'm not speaking physically, right? You're still going to bleed. Somebody hits you, you're still going to get a black eye. Someone sins against you, your feelings will still get hurt. Your heart will be wounded. But not in a way that is unredeemable. 
Why? Because there's two reasons. Because one, God's blessing is eternal, that death cannot stop it. So even if life is taken from you, God's blessing rests on you. And two, what doesn't kill you leads you to more blessing. Now, how could this be, right? Doesn't, doesn't, how could suffering lead to more blessing, right? It seems like suffering is a result of a curse, right? And that's especially what the Greco-Roman train of thought was here, that if you are suffering, it's, it's a form of punishment for what you're doing. You're doing something wrong. But you know what suffering does? Suffering makes you weak. Suffering makes you needy. It wears you out. It takes its toll on you. It brings you to the end of yourself, thus bringing the blessing of leading you deeper into dependence on Jesus. See, and what you find in your neediness, in your weakness, in the suffering, is that Jesus is sufficient. See, suffering for Jesus only leads you to more Jesus. The one who defeated sin, death, and evil. And because he won, we too are victorious. Therefore, there is no need for us to be afraid, as verse 14 says. And here's the thing. Many of us are afraid. We're afraid to live out our Christian life. We're afraid when it comes to to, to speaking about Jesus. And it's not because we're afraid of being tortured because it's very unlikely that that would happen, but it is very possible that friends and family might treat us differently, that we might be maligned, that we might be left out and ignored. See, while torture leaves physical scars, the internal wounds of relational hostility oftentimes hurts far worse. But Peter says that if Jesus is supreme, if your heart is set on Jesus as Lord, that all things are working out for your good. That even if you suffer for his name, you will be blessed. See, and while we face suffering and evil, we do so with hope and optimism that will leave people confused. And this is why Peter says, be ready be ready to explain why, people, why you're the way you are. See, when, when non-Christians see Christians enduring suffering with vigor and optimism, that we're going to be cross-examined. They're going to say, why are you the way that you are? Why do you do what you do? And Peter says, be ready to tell him. Be ready to tell him. And the reason is because Jesus did it for you. That when Jesus was cursed, he was a blessing to you. And then, and then Peter conditions this with verses 15 through 17. He says, speak with gentleness and respect. Speak with a clear conscience to be above reproach. Now these conversations that we have with non-believers, people who are wondering what's going on, skeptics, they have a tendency to become combative. But Peter is saying, you will not win them over that way. Speak to them with gentleness, humility, with honor, Don't be arrogant, because people aren't drawn to that. That's not what Jesus was like. Be gentle. Speak to them just as you you have heard Jesus speak sweetly and tenderly to you. Make every attempt to bless them so that they might find their supreme blessing in Christ. See, this is the purpose of the Christian life, to bless others, to be a blessing that blesses others. See, this is the domino effect. Now, let me just, as I close up here, finally. 
What do you think would happen if our MCs, if our missional communities, were marked by these characteristics? What do you think would happen if we lavishly blessed one another with unity and tenderness, brotherly love, sympathy, humility, that we gave each other forgiveness and blessing even when it's not deserved? If we endure suffering optimistically, just think of that. See, we would become part of a gospel movement that would sweep our cities. There is nothing more appealing than to see Christians living out the Christian life and pointing to Jesus. Why do I do things with you? Because Jesus did what he did for me. I get so excited about this. Conversions, baptisms, people joining our missional communities, relationships restored, and it all starts with you pressing into the gospel, to finding your supreme blessing, living the blessed life to be a blessing to others. Sacred City, let's start a domino effect. In fact, let's just, we can't start this. God's the one who's already initiated it. He's already hit the domino. Let's respond appropriately in light of God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that is undeserved completely. We have done nothing to earn it, No zeal, no effort, no works, nothing. Nothing can earn us the blessing that you've given us in Christ. And so we rejoice in Christ that as we come to the table, we see his body, his blood broken, given up, shed for us. That we might be formed into his likeness. Would you help us to suffer well, Father? I pray that we would be a church that is marked by that, as our mission communities with brotherly love, sympathy, tenderness, unity, humility, to forgive in the face of evil and to bless when we are cursed. Make us into your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.